Well, good morning, Gospel Chapel. Great to be here this morning. Beautiful day. Went hiking yesterday. Ran into Kim up on the top of the mountain with her dogs. Had a good time together up there. It was great. Um, and uh, wow, the flowers are coming out. You see all the little little flowers and some of the bigger yellow ones are coming out now. And it's just a beautiful time of year. Uh, well, we're going to be in the book of Judges today. And so if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 2, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, we're in a we're almost done our first year. <laughs> uh, in September, we started the Gospel Project, which is a three-year through the Bible um, series, and our uh, kids in Sunday school are doing this. We have adult daily discipleship guides that you can use in small groups or just for private devotions. But we're taking three years to go through the Bible in, in somewhat of a snapshot fashion, because if you think of it, you know, 66 books over three years, you kind of are going to have to, you can't hit everything. And so even in Judges, we're only going to be in two, two weeks in Judges, but uh, that'll be enough for Judges, and I'll explain that in a moment. Our, our primary purpose as we're going through the Bible in, in this way with the Gospel Project is, is kind of talked about in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus meets the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're so discouraged because they really thought that Jesus was going to be the one that freed them from Roman oppression, but they didn't really understand what his mission was about. So he has to back up and start with everything in the law, the prophets and the writings to teach them about what his mission really was and that he had to come and die and rise again. And so we're looking through scripture, through this lens that, that Jesus himself gives us of his own life, death, and resurrection, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so the book of Joshua, you know, we kind of finished that up last week, and it ends on a fairly high note, doesn't it? Things are good. The, the, the nation of Israel has rest in, in the land. They've, they've come out of Egypt. They've gone through 40 years of wilderness wandering, they've been tested. God has given them his word, his, his covenant. He's brought them to himself. And now they're in the promised land. Remember Joshua 23, 1, they had rest from all their enemies and everyone was home. And God had promised this to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Know for certain your descendants are going to be enslaved in a land not their own. And they're going to be there for 400 years, but I'm going to bring them out and I'm going to bring them back to this land. And this has happened. Everything was going so well. And then Joshua dies. And those who were in leadership under him start passing away as well. And soon the nation of Israel is leaderless. See, Joshua had no second for whatever reason, the example he had in Moses didn't inspire him to make sure he had someone who, to whom he would pass the baton. You know, we, we met Joshua back in Exodus 17, right? And then he was with Mo Moses on the mountain and he was always in close proximity with Moses and he was learning from Moses. But all through Joshua, it's just Joshua leading armies. 
You see, Joshua had a specific task and a call from God to lead. And there's, but unfortunately, there's no indication he was preparing for what was next along the way. He just leaves it up to the people at the end of his life. Choose this day whom you will serve. And for a while it worked. But without clear leadership, a community ceases to function well and individual, individualism and self-centered living take over and community disintegrates into an every-man-for-himself cutthroat culture. And the book of Judges isn't the happiest of stories. <clears throat> John Piper, in his book Providence, puts it this way, reading the book of Judges is like having the insanity of sin rubbed in your face while God returns again and again with mercy, which is repeatedly forgotten. Now, we're only going to be spending two weeks in the book of Judges because the stories are repetitious and cyclical. They, they're, and they're meant to be. The, the, the book is designed to argue that a leaderless society is not healthy. Leaders and leadership are always needed. See, the book of Judges is ultimately written to point us to the fact that left to ourselves and our own devices, we don't do so well. This book is a prelude, really, to an introduction to the book of Samuel Kings. Let's kind of understand that as one whole narrative. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, it's Joshua judges Samuel Kings. Ruth, Ruth comes in the writings of the different, different part of the Hebrew canon. Uh, but Ben will tackle that in a couple weeks. Probably not the canonical order thing, that's really a side issue. But you know. Ultimately, it's pointing us to the fact that we, as human beings, need a king. We need God's anointed leader to bring us back to himself. And the book of Judges is really bad news for a society bent on individualistic autonomy based on humanism. Because that's what's happening but it is eminently good news because God always shows up with mercy. So turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter two and we're gonna read verses six to 19. Let's stand together as I read this. Lord, as we read your word, speak to our hearts. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnaheretz in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies at all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so today we're looking at three realities from this text. First of all, that God's people are quick to abandon him. Secondly, that the people face consequences for their sin. And thirdly, that God's people are saved through the rescuer he provides. So first of all, God's people are quick to abandon him. And in verses 8 to 13, we see this happening. <clears throat> if there's any, ever any a question of whether or not we need leadership, this passage answers it. Joshua and his generation pass away and a new generation emerges that doesn't know their history. They don't know the Lord. How did that happen? It kind of reads as if it happened overnight, but remember, Joshua is way, way older than the rest of the people. Way older than the elders of Israel who were serving with him at the time. Right? Joshua, we met in Exodus 17. He's there for the whole journey. He's there for the whole Exodus, a whole generation. Other than Caleb, he would be the only other person close to his age. The generation of the conquest is many years younger, a whole generation younger. Also, the text literally says, there arose another generation without any indication of this being immediately after Joshua, or perhaps the, Josh, uh, the generation of the leaders that led after him. There's no real time reference here. Either way, what has happened is that life was settled. The people were now living in the land in relative peace and safety and prosperity. And they forgot God. Because that's what happens in times of peace and prosperity and safety. Deuteronomy warned of this over and over and over again. And Deuteronomy 8, 11 to 14 says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full 
and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Many of you ever gone on this, there's this website called the Global Wealth Index. Ever seen that? What you can do there is, is you simply type in your annual average income and it compares it with the average income of every, every uh, you know, average income on the globe and you get to find out where you sit on that. Now back when I was you know, working part-time at my church in Mission, I was making a lot less, maybe 25, 30,000. I was still in the top 1% globally. We're a rich people. When we, we, you know, we think we're, you know, oh, it's such a struggle now. Gas is almost $2 a liter. It's almost as expensive as bottled water. But we're so rich. We're so well off. We have good houses. Herds and flocks multiplied. Silver and gold multiplied. Be very careful because this is where we forget the Lord our God who saves us. We forget that it's from his hand that all the good things we have have come from. See, unfortunately, Joshua and the elders of Israel at some point and for reasons that we're not told failed to pass on their experiences and their faith to the next generation. I think what happens here and what happens in our own lives is even as followers of Jesus, we come to faith in God and then we get so used to the routine of religion that we forget God is real and active. We go to church, but we don't fall in love with Jesus. Our greatest joy isn't found in Christ. It's having the life we want, the comfort we feel we deserve, and the blessings we believe we've earned. In short, we follow God because of what we get out of it. And what God wants is for us to find our home in him and our greatest fulfillment in him. Bill Hull in his article, Spiritual Formation from the Inside Out, identifies this issue and he says this, the problem is that many of us have been taught and believe that we can become a Christian but not a disciple of Jesus. We can become a Christian but discipleship is something, you know, just for, for special people. But Jesus just simply says, follow me. See, it's easy to come to church. It's easy to show up at an event or a program. It's another thing to walk alongside one another on the journey of experiencing the transforming work of Jesus Christ that changes our hearts, renews our minds, and leads us to live a radically different life, loving God and loving others. Maybe write this one down. I don't have it on the screen. Religious duty is not a substitute for obedient loving. I originally wrote living, but then I scratched out that one vowel and made it from an O I to an O. Religious duty is not a substitute for obedient loving. 
again from Bill Hall, who said this so well. We have a natural tendency to separate the religious life from the common life. The religious life is attending church services, observing special religious holidays, keeping Advent calendars, trying not to eat dessert during Lent. The religious life is also daily devotions, going to Christian mission trips, attending a Bible study, helping the poor, and many good things called Christian. All these activities have intrinsic value, but they still may leave the common life untouched. The common life is how we treat our spouse and children, the way we drive our cars, and the media we take in. It is what's going on under the hood. How does a Christian business leader treat his employees? Is he a man of his word? Can he be trusted? It is necessary for the disciple of Christ to bring the whole of his life under the direction of his leader. A person may be very attentive to his or her religious life, but still be ruled by worry, anger, pride, sensuality in his or her common life. See, the bottom line is a transformed life that increasingly reflects the life of Jesus. And that's the best, most authentic, most authentic, compelling apologetic for the gospel you can possibly give. It's your life transformed by Jesus. If Jesus is changing me, my life's going to speak. Gospel lived is gospel proclaimed. But this takes a lifetime of just engaging with God and his word and prayer in community, helping one another follow Jesus. It's our mission. And then coming to the place where the central motive of our hearts is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. What we find in the book of Judges is a people who were loving themselves and doing whatever they wanted. Whatever happened behind the scenes in Joshua's life and the next generation of leaders that followed him, something fell off the rails and the Lord was forgotten. The stories of God's redemption and rescue of his people were forgotten. They forgot the Lord and they abandoned his ways. It's the first thing that we see in this text. The second is that God's people face consequences for their sin. Verse 14 and 15. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. If you really want to understand the history of Israel and the prophets, you need to know Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Those passages outline the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. Sin has consequences. What is listed here in, in these few verses is the mirror opposite of what Joshua said back in chapter 23 and verse 9. <clears throat> Remember this? 
starting in verse eight, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day for the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised. But be very careful therefore to love the Lord your God. So Joshua was saying at the, at the end of his life and in the midst of a time of peace, he was saying that you have been blessed and God has fought for you. But now in this moment, when the people have forgotten God, the tables have turned and God is now fighting against Israel. There are consequences for sin. And throughout the rest of Judges and Samuel and Kings, we read repeatedly of the struggle of the people of God. They struggle with idolatry, with wandering from God and, the, and all the painful consequences that follow. See, when we want our own way and when we refuse to follow God's purposes and plan, he allows us to do just that and he gives us just what we ask for, freedom from him. And then we have to live with the consequences of our actions and our decisions. See, the larger story, if you really zoom out, from Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, because this is where Kings ends. The larger story of this whole section of Scripture is the reality of the Babylonian exile. The, the larger story here is explaining to the people of Israel why they're in exile, why Jerusalem's in ruins, why the glory of Solomon's temple is reduced to rubble, and why they were exiled from the promised land just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. There's a bigger story happening here. It's the pattern of the whole Old Testament, especially the law and the prophets, that, that God creates a place of peace and wholeness and abundance and blessing and lives in relationship intimately with his people, but humanity consistently chooses autonomy and self-government and it results in exile from God's presence. And just as Cain struggled for survival and feared for his life after he murdered Abel, so the people of Israel have forgotten the Lord and are choosing to follow other gods. And now they live, even though they are still on the promised land at this point in Judges, devoid of peace and safety and security. See, when we choose to live apart from God's purposes and his expectations, when we insist on doing life our way, it doesn't take long for the peace and the safety and the security to evaporate. We find ourselves alone and struggling and fearing for our lives in a hostile world. And even though God offers forgiveness and restoration, we often then have to live with ongoing consequences of our disobedience. Sin has consequences, and God's people have to face the consequences of their sin. If you think about this, think of the life of David. David, <clears throat> after he has Uriah murdered and Bathsheba becomes his wife, and he does the murder to cover up the adultery, God confronts him. He repents, but he says, I'm not going to kill you, but the baby that Bathsheba is carrying is going to die. And it does. David has to live with that. He has to live with his sons fighting over the throne and against him the rest of his life. Lots of family dysfunction. 
You think of Peter, and Peter had to overcome the shame of denying Jesus three times. You think of Paul, and he had to let go of the guilt of being a persecutor of the church. Sin hurts us and those around us, and the relationships are broken. Trust is hard to rebuild. And the more we ignore the damage, the more damage we inflict if we don't deal with it. God's people face consequences for their sin. But God is always ready to redeem and restore our broken lives and poor choices. And that's the second main message of Judges. Remember what John Piper said earlier. God returns again and again with mercy. Third thing we're looking at is that God's people are saved through a rescuer he provides. They are saved through a rescuer he provides. That's interesting. As I was studying this, I discovered this passage, this section, this verse 16 to 19, really stand apart from the passage so far. It's, so far, it's been a very kind of this happened and then this happened and this happened. But right now, things change a little bit not only in what it says, but how it even says it in the original language. First, the main idea, the main verb of the first part of verse 16, but the Lord raised up judges who saved them. The glimmer of hope, a glimmer of mercy, a glimmer of deliverance. The verb raised up is the same as what the author used in chapter two and verse 10, a generation arose that did not know Yahweh, but God raised up judges to save them. The second verb, saved, is the root of the name Joshua, Yeshua. Yahweh saves. He saved them. He delivered them, rescued them. God raises up a savior for his people. But after these two verbs, the Hebrew syntax changes. It's hard to capture it in English. And the, the um, Best description of this is, is what's called a procedural discourse, which is used to describe customary script predictable routine. This is what's going to happen on a routine basis. Script predictable, like a Hallmark Christmas romantic comedy. You know exactly where it's going before you even press play. That's why we, can, we, we don't have to spend, like, we don't have to look at every single judge because the pattern's the same. God raises up a judge. The judge rescues them from a certain situation. The judge dies. The people go back to what they were doing before. Repeat. Rinse and repeat. <laughs> and it just keeps getting worse. Next week, we're going to look at Samson. Samson raised by God to be the last judge. What a train wreck his life was. Big, strong guy. But boy, you know, when God uses the worst guy you can possibly imagine sometimes. God raises up a judge through whom there's salvation, verse 16. However, the people wouldn't listen. They continued in their sin, verse 17, but God would continue to raise up judges, continue to work salvation for his people. And he does this solely as an act of his will because he has compassion on his people. 
The judge dies and the people revert to disobedient, sinful living and things just keep getting worse. Notice what happens here. God takes the initiative to raise up a leader to save his people. And he does so out of compassion. Leader's going to fulfill God's purpose and deliver the people from a certain crisis, but their hearts remain unchanged. And this reveals the real problem that we all have. External salvation from from something does not always lead to internal transformation of our hearts. We can change the situation we're living in, but it doesn't necessarily change us. You know, you can pack up and move to another city or find another church, but you guess what? First law of location. Wherever you are, there you are. You take it all with you. All your baggage. Without a transformed heart, without the cause of the crisis removed, we inevitably revert to sinful behavior. We can be led for a while. We can show up at church or in small group, but if our hearts have not been truly transformed by the mercy and the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will continue in our sinful habits and our attitudes and actions. Something more than an external judge is needed. Our hearts need to change. And Jesus Christ came to lead us back to God by breaking the power of sin that separates us from God. The judges could deal with the external crisis, but Jesus came to deal with the internal cause. The transformation of our hearts, unfortunately, isn't a one-time event. It's a lifelong process being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The evidence of the ongoing heart transformation God is working in us is that we become more obedient to God's word. We begin to value what God values, love what he loves. Our hearts become more passionate for his presence and his purposes. And we grow in our love for God and one another and and people. In short, our lives become more like Jesus because he's living in us and through us and changing us. John 15, 9 to 10, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Or just back up a chapter, John 14, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, love and obedience go together, and our culture doesn't like this kind of talk. Obedience is oppression. Like like obeying? What do you mean? But obedience proves our love. And love is lived out in obedience. Obedience. See, obedience only can happen in the context of a relationship. What we're becoming on the inside is God transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit as we surrender to his lordship into the character and the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, will of necessity begin to show up in how we live. The inner reality of God's work in our hearts must bear fruit. 
in how we live our lives and how we love one another. Again, from Bill Hull, I love how he puts this. Obedience is uncomplicated. When someone who has given his life for you asks for your help, your first impulse is to say yes. And I love that idea of uncomplicated obedience. See, we tend to make obedience to God something really complicated. Like, you got to take a course. You got to go to college and study the Bible in order to be obedient. It's like, we complicate it so much. Uncomplicated obedience. Jesus has given his life for you. So will you just say yes to him? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was fond of saying this, only the obedient believe, and only those who believe are obedient. Faith is only real in obedience. It's from the cost of discipleship. So what does Judges teach us? That God's people first are quick to abandon him. Secondly, God's people face consequences for their sin. But third, God works to save his people through a rescuer he provides. The story of Israel is the story of us. We're quick to abandon God and his ways when it conflicts with what we think will bring more immediate and greater fulfillment in our lives. When we want God on our terms. We want God to agree with our values and our politics and our morality and we avoid the discomfort of living as a people set apart for God's glory to reveal his character. In short, we often create a God in our own image, which is idolatry, and we walk away from who he is. We're quick to abandon God. We have to face the consequences of our choices, our mistakes, and our sins. We have to come to terms with the fact that God is actually in control, that he is Lord and creator, whose glory and purpose will prevail and who will continue to challenge our attitudes, our inner talk, our beliefs, through the presence of his spirit and the clear teaching of his word. Because sooner or later, our sinful choices are going to create pain in our lives because sin has consequences. But God has provided a way of salvation. He always does a means of forgiveness and reconciliation in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater judge who came not to effect a short-term solution to a specific crisis, but who came to die and defeat the root cause of our rebellion, our sin, and to free us from sinful, self-centered living and renew our hearts and minds so that our greatest joy and fulfillment comes from knowing him. The prophet Ezekiel, a vision today, when God would pour out his spirit on his people and change their hearts. Ezekiel 11, 19 to 20. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. A heart transplant is needed for relational wholeness to be restored. And that day is now. 
When we come to Jesus and turn our lives over to his lordship and full surrender, he gives us his spirit and begins the process of changing us so that we reflect his character and reveal his glory through our everyday lives and every circumstance we face. Now, we're all a work in progress, absolutely. But there's not a need to try harder to be like Jesus, but simply, well, maybe not simply. This is probably more difficult because it's easier to act it out. The hard part is to fully surrender to what he wants to do in your life today. See, Jesus doesn't necessarily call for everything in our lives to change all at once. But there's probably areas in your life he's challenging you on today. And he calls each of us to examine our lives and our motives over time. Exposes the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts and the searchlight of his word empowered by his spirit for a lifelong process of changing you and me into the image of his son. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Jesus is both your judge and your savior. He is a God of justice who will confront your sin. and call you to repentance, of, of turning back to him and surrendering to who he is. But he is a God of mercy because at the cross, Jesus defeated sin and forgiveness and a new heart is available. Left to ourselves, we eventually make a mess of our lives and our relationships. But God, who is rich in mercy, offers us a way home. Full surrender to Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave his life for us. A new way to live and a new way to love found when we surrender to Christ. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we Continue on in this life, we will learn what it means to love you with everything that is in us. That we would lay down our agenda for yours. That we would seek to please not ourselves and the desires of our flesh, but seek to just walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you will not please the desires of the flesh. The choice is before us. Are we going to walk in the Spirit? Lord, help us to do that. Lord, I pray that as we go into this week, may we consider the story of Judges and consider how our story is told in this book. How from time to time we have a, a renewal, a revival, a, a summer camp experience, a mountaintop thing. But how quickly we revert to our old habits and ways. Lord, help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 
so that we may test and approve what your will is, good and perfect and pleasing and more fulfilling than any other way we could possibly pursue in life. Lord, reveal to us the emptiness and the shallowness of life apart from you so that we can fully surrender to you and find in you the life, the freedom, the joy that you have for us. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I didn't come to make it a train wreck or boring. Jesus said, I came to give you life and fullness now and ultimate fullness when we reach the end of this life. So Lord, may we surrender to you today. Wherever we're at on our journey, there's always more hills to give up to you. There's more battles that we're fighting with you. Help us to surrender day by day and find our home in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.